everyone, and welcome to our first social distancing podcast on the financial reporting implications of the COVID-19 epidemic. I am Sasha Lektionova, and with the help of technology, I am joined today by an awesome group of experts, Stephen Hogg, Pinia Duplessis, and Marianne Trieber, who are all part of our accounting advisory team here at PwC. Just like everywhere across New Zealand, we are all following lockdown protocols, which actually means that our podcast is recorded from the comfort of our homes. So hopefully it all goes okay with no surprise sound effects. Now we're all in this together and you probably already are seeing that the disruption caused by the virus and measures taken to contain it have an immense impact on economies across the world and here in New Zealand. So the goal here with the help of our experts is to give you a good overview of the accounting implications, of which there are plenty. In fact, I'm, the impact is quite pervasive and I'm struggling to think of a financial line item which is not impacted in one way or another. So I guess, Stephen, what would you say is the key accounting issue? Well, Sasha, I think the key underlying issue is the uncertainty that we're all facing. Everything is challenging, uh, is changing so quickly and we just haven't seen this before. None of us know what will happen next with the virus, all the measures taken by governments to stop its spread, or just how long it's going to last. The uncertainty is really pervasive, so it's going to affect all aspects of reporting. We're going to discuss some of the issues shortly, but I think the key thing to emphasise here is communication and disclosure. When there is increased uncertainty and increased risk, it is essential that management explain the assumptions that they've made, so for example around impairment tests, and then explain the risks and sensitivities associated with those judgments. The other big ticket issue is that one of the fundamental concepts that underlies most financial reporting is that the financial statements are prepared on a going concern basis. Now unfortunately, in some cases, the impact of the measures taken to control the spread of the virus might have such a significant impact on an entity's cash flows that it's no longer a going concern, or there is significant doubt about its ability to continue as a going concern. Indeed, there's a really sad consequences of this pandemic. Now, if we assume that the entity is a going concern, what would you say is the list of things to watch out for? Well, top of the list is going to be the carrying value of assets whether they need to be written down or impaired. So if I start with financial assets, and then maybe Tinia can talk about uh, non-financial assets, the recoverability of receivables is certainly one of the areas that comes to mind first. Given the significant economic impacts we've seen already, and the likelihood that things are going to get worse before they get better, many businesses will have customers that are struggling financially. This means that for any receivables recognised on the books, Entities will have to evaluate the collectability of those receivables using IFRS 9's expected credit loss model. For corporates, this means that they'll need to adjust the forward-looking information factored into the current provisions based on the level of uncertainty today and make sure that they have controls in place to monitor that uncertainty as they move forward to ensure that they can adequately document, support and book their allowance for loan losses. The same exercise will be a lot more complicated for banks and other financial institutions. This is because banks have complex models in place to assess expected credit losses under IFRS 9. 
Banks might need to consider additional scenarios related to the spread of COVID-19. This might be achieved by adding one or more additional downside scenarios or amending one or more of the existing scenarios, for example, to reflect a more severe downside or to increase their weighting, or maybe using an overlay if the impact is not included in the bank's main expected credit loss model. The New Zealand government has also recently announced a business finance guarantee scheme that will provide short-term credit to help cushion the financial distress on solvent, small and medium-sized entities affected by COVID-19. Banks themselves will likely need to reflect this credit enhancement held and consider whether it should be included in the measurement of the ECL of the related loans or accounted for separately. Yes, that's definitely going to be a challenge for banks, given that the new IFRS model has been around for only a couple of years. So I guess, Tinia, can you maybe talk to the question of whether non-financial assets are reflected at appropriate carrying amounts on the balance sheet? I mean, what would be some of the things the companies should be thinking about in this area? I'm pretty certain that uncertainty in this situation is doing no favours for the impairment modelling. Indeed, Sasha. Uh, as Stephen mentioned, we just don't know what's going to happen over the next few weeks or months. Um, and I suspect it's going to be incredibly difficult for most entities to fully understand not only the short term, but also the longer term impact of COVID-19 on their business. And off the back of that, to reach a reliable and supportable cash flow forecast position to use in impairment assessments. In this current environment, entities may also have to consider multiple scenarios and the outcome decided on will need to be backed by reliable evidence, which will be challenging in itself. Uh, there's also a number of other complexities which I think will be useful to mention. For example, it might not be appropriate given the current uncertainties within the market to determine fair value less cost of disposal using earnings multiples or recent transactions. Entities will therefore need to carefully consider how to determine fair value less cost of disposal where there is an actual impairment and therefore requirement to determine both value in use and fair value less cost of disposal. And to add to these uncertainties and complexities, new information is becoming available at almost a daily rate and therefore key assumptions and outcomes will need to be continuously reassessed right through to the signing date of financial statements and the publication of the annual report. Entities will also need to consider whether any new information that comes to light constitutes an adjusting or non-adjusting subsequent event. And I also suspect that cash flow models will be highly sensitive to changes in key assumptions. So entities will need to carefully determine which assumptions are key and also ensure that these assumptions are determined in accordance with the technical requirements of NZIS 36. That sounds like a lot of things going on, uh, Tinia. What about discount rates? I suspect these may become a challenge as well. Unfortunately, yes, Sasha. Uh, we expect that the computation of discount rates will require judgment to determine an appropriate risk premium. So although central banks have um, reduced interest rates via cuts to the OCR and quantitative easing, it is expected that discount rates will increase to reflect increased uncertainty and risk. 
So for example, um, a deterioration in a company's credit rating is likely to increase the borrowing margin and the cost of equity will also increase until the impact of COVID-19 on the demand side of the world economy becomes clearer. My advice to entities would be not to underestimate the complexities and time it will take to get to a supportable position. Impairment is likely to be a key focus area for the regulator and it will be critical that all key estimates, judgments and assumptions are documented and supported by sufficient evidence. In this environment, I would encourage entities to consider early on whether experts such as valuation and technical accounting experts should be engaged by management to assist them in not only reaching a supportable position, but also to ensure that underlying documentation is in order. Yes, I definitely think it's a huge challenge for everyone right now. You also mentioned that COVID-19 impairment modeling is likely to be highly sensitive to changes in key assumptions. I just wanted to piggyback on that comment and reiterate the importance of comprehensive disclosures that Stephen was talking about earlier. The disclosure requirements in IS36 are extensive, but entities shouldn't also forget about the requirement included in IS1, which requires additional disclosures to explain the sources of estimation uncertainty in determining the carrying value of assets and liabilities. So leaving disclosures for last them, unfortunately, won't be an option in the current circumstances. That's a good point, Sasha. Given the volatility in the market and the uncertainties we spoke about earlier, thorough and transparent disclosures will be critical. The FMA has recently requested entities to ensure that both qualitative and quantitative disclosures in the financial statements regarding the impact of COVID-19 are complete and provide readers with adequate information that is material and relevant. This should include disclosing information beyond what is required by the accounting standards, where it is necessary to provide a complete picture of the impact of COVID-19. Yeah, and I'd, I'd also like to say here that the um, current volatility would have an impact on the determination of fair values as at reporting date too. Um, you know, this affects the fair value measurement either directly if the fair value is determined based on market prices. So, for example, um, in, the, in the case of shares or debt securities traded on an active market or indirectly. So, um, for the likes of a valuation technique that's based on inputs that are derived from volatile markets. I'd also like to highlight that the counterparty credit risk and the credit spread that is used to determine fair value might also increase in the current environment. So, and in fact, actually, we've seen that happening already. However, the impact of actions taken by governments to stimulate the economy might actually reduce things like the risk-free interest rates. So, for example, here in New Zealand, the official cash rate um, was reduced to 0.25%, having been reduced from 1% uh, just over a month ago, and, and is forecast to actually remain at this level for at least the next 12 months. This is one of the many measures that have been undertaken so far to try and offset the negative economic impacts of COVID-19. Um, and these monetary policy changes are actually quite a good segue into some of the other areas relating to financial markets, such as hedging or um, potentially debt restructurings. So maybe if I start with hedging and more specifically cash flow hedge accounting, 
one of the criteria for achieving hedge counting is that the forecast transaction is considered highly probable. So as the level of uncertainty increases due to some of these recent events, that may put pressure on the probability assertions used for hedge counting. Entities need to consider their hedging relationships and where the level of uncertainty has caused the forecast transaction to cease to be highly probable, at that point in time, prospectively, all subsequent changes in the derivatives fair value should be recognised in the profit or loss. Um, question for you, Stephen. But what will happen with the amounts that were previously deferred and accumulated in equity reserve then? Well, that's where judgment comes into play, Sasha. The entity needs to assess the likelihood of the originally hedge risks still occurring, be that future debt, um, future sales or purchases. Entities will need to look at it from the perspective of whether it's still probable based on the accumulated evidence that they have in the history of these types of transactions and man management's current plans. If the likelihood of the hedge risk or exposure is no longer probable, then the entity needs to immediately reclassify the amounts accumulated within the equity into the profit or loss. Oh, thank you, Stephen. That's definitely something to focus on for entities with hedging in place. I think you also mentioned earlier one other financial consideration we should perhaps discuss, and that is debt modifications. Now, given the difficult economic circumstances that companies are facing, it is very likely, unfortunately, that there will be more constraints on cash resources, um, which in turn may mean that entities may breach existing covenants, or need to renegotiate the terms of their existing borrowings. So what should we watch out for in this area, Stephen? Well, there are several things to think about here. To start with, a breach of covenants could result in loan repayment terms changing and some loans becoming repayable on demand. Management should consider whether the classification of loans and other financing liabilities between uh, non-current and current is affected. And in extreme situations, whether the entity remains a going concern. This is especially important where there are any cross-default clauses. Management should also consider the effects of any changes in the terms of borrowings as a result of the circumstances described earlier. And remember, you need to treat waivers obtained after the reporting date as non-adjusting events. Now, if any debt renegotiation takes place, both parties to the debt agreement should apply the guidance in IFRS 9 to determine the impact of the change in lending terms. This involves determining whether the change is so substantial that it leads to full de-recognition, de or if not, for recognising a modification, gain or loss. That's right. Thank you, Stephen. Um, if any of our listeners are keen to learn more, we actually talked about the accounting considerations for debt renegotiations as part of our 2019 financial reporting update. And uh, I think the recording is still available on our PwC Academy website. Now, while we're on the topic of renegotiations, actually, let's not forget about leases. Uh, we've started to see some of this already happening in the real estate sector. So do you want to share some of your observations, Stephen? Sure, Sasha. Um... During these trying times, a lessor and a lessee might actually renegotiate the terms of an existing lease, or a lessor may uh, grant a concession of some sort in connection with lease payments. So for example, in the form of a rent-free period. In these circumstances, 
both parties should consider the requirements of IFRS 16, which is that new leases standard, and assess whether the concession should be accounted for as a lease modification. For the lessor, the rent-free period given to the lessee would be would likely be treated as a uh, lease modification under IFRS 16 because it changes the consideration and was not part of the original lease agreement. The lessor should recognise the reduction in expected future operating lease income over the period of the lease as this is considered a lease incentive. Similarly, the relief would be um, likely meet the definition of a lease modification for the lessee and as such, the guidance in IFRS 16 would require the lessee to adjust the lease liability to the extent that they had not yet received the relief and adjust the corresponding right of use asset. I would stress, however, that for lessees, it would be important to understand what other changes, if any, occurred at the same time. So for example, changes to the lease term or the scope of the lease. Without getting too technical, there are varying approaches to accounting for changes to leases depending on the nature of the change. So please make sure that you understand the requirements of the new standard clearly prior to making changes. Yes, that's right. And we actually saw a freeze to residential rent increases and greater protections for tenants against having their tenancies terminated, which were included in the government's response package. There are not, no similar blanket measures available to commercial tenants, but definitely a number of them are renegotiating their lease terms, just as you said. Now, let's turn to sales. We are seeing declining revenues and revised sale forecasts across a number of industries as a result of the reduced economic activities. What would be some of the things people should be thinking here, Marianne? Yes, Sasha, um, impacts on revenue recognition would definitely need to be considered. And clearly for many entities, revenues will be falling or are falling, and this will have to be accounted for as that happens. But there are some specific issues that are worth mentioning here. Firstly, under IFRS 15, an entity has a contract with a customer and applies the revenue standard when it's probable that the entity will collect the consideration. So if you are not sure whether a customer has the intention and the ability to pay, that might mean that you don't have a contract on the IFRS 15. And if that is the case, it's important to consider the specific guidance in IFRS 15 to determine how you're going to account for the transaction before it falls into the scope of the revenue standard. Secondly, IFRS 15 has a specific model for variable consideration. So this applies to all sorts of things like rebates or penalties that, for instance, um, a charge if the company delivers late or volume disc discounts. IFRS 15 requires that variable consideration is recognized only when it's highly probable that there will not be a significant reversal of revenue when the uncertainty is resolved. And the revenue from variable consideration is measured at expected value. So because of the increased uncertainty, the impact on variable consideration could be significant. So it's important to remember the threshold of, of recognizing variable consideration. And people may also need to revisit the measurement to reflect the current circumstances. And finally, disclosures will also be important to explain any judgments and sensitivities that may exist.
Yeah, there's certainly um, a lot to think about here, Marianne. Um, I'd also say that because of all the uncertainty in the current environment, historical models that companies have used may not be applicable anymore in some cases. I therefore recommend that entities think about the downstream impacts and what might happen there. Uh, there'll be no easy answers to this, but you do need to evaluate that. Again, not only just for current sales, but also any previous sales, perhaps it will have an open element around how much money you ultimately receive. This is very interesting, guys, because I think we would definitely, there would be definitely cases where, let's say, on 31st December, things were assessed as probable, but then today, because of all the unanticipated events and changes, the originally recognized revenue would become no longer probable. And so then in that case, would you be potentially recognizing reversals of what you previously recognized? Yes, that's definitely a possibility, Sasha. IFRS 15 contemplates uh, certainly these sorts of adjustments. So if people are keen to learn more or revisit the IFRS 15 revenue model, a guide to revenue recognition that covers all of the areas we just mentioned is available online. That's very helpful, Marianne. Thank you. Now, we already mentioned some of New Zealand government's measures to protect people and businesses from the impact of COVID-19. I think there is a lot more here. For example, one of the most significant changes, uh, as I understand, under the COVID-19 Response Act is the reintroduction of the tax depreciation of buildings. So, Marianne, can you please talk a little bit more about it and what it means? So we've spoken a lot about negative effects of some of the measures taken to control the spread of the virus. But we also need to think about measures that have been taken to support businesses. And an example to that is just as you mentioned, the reintroduction of tax depreciation for industrial and commercial buildings from the 2021 tax year. You may recall that tax depreciation of buildings was removed about 10 years ago in 2010, and that law change at the time resulted in large additional deferred tax balances for many businesses. The reintroduction of tax depreciation now increases the tax base of buildings, which could result in the reversal of, of some or all of these deferred tax liabilities. And in some cases, it may even result in a deferred tax asset. The impact of this change could be significant for many entities, but the magnitude will depend on different factors. So for example, whether the building was acquired before or after 2010. Also, it's buildings that are held for use in the business that will be most affected. So for buildings where different tax is recognized on a sale basis on the IS-12, there shouldn't really be any change. So for example, different tax on investment properties that have applied the sale presumption should continue to be measured based on the tax consequences of sale. That's really good, Marianne. But I guess the big question here is, when do we have to reflect these changes in the financial statements? That is a good question. So IS-12 requires entities to account for deferred tax based on legislation that is substantively enacted by the end of the reporting period. So given the urgent legislation received its royal assent on the 25th of March, it was enacted on that date. So for entities with a 31 March reporting date, the impact of these changes will have to be reflected in the 31 March financial statements. 
if you have a reporting date prior to 25th of March and your financial statements are yet to be approved, you should consider disclosing the legislative change and the estimated financial effect as a non-adjusting event, whether it is material. And just another point, for each of the government measures, management would need to understand the terms and conditions to determine the appropriate accounting treatment. This is because some of the measures might be a government grant in the scope of IS-20, but others won't be a government grant, and so a different standard will apply. Thank you, Marianne. These are all excellent points. One other thing I'm thinking here, um, it is fair to say that in these difficult times, uh, employee welfare and talent retention would become particularly crucial for long-term survival of the organization. And uh, the way I understand it, New Zealand government recently offered a wage subsidy scheme uh, in an effort to encourage retention of employees. Uh, so Marianne, would you then be able to tell us a little bit more about this subsidy scheme and what sort of considerations, accounting considerations, should the entities be thinking about here? Sure. So we think that the wage subsidy is a government grant on the IS-20, but another important consideration here is to determine which party is receiving the grant. So although the funds are paid to the employer, which are then passed on to the employees, the employer itself must meet certain criteria and will have ongoing obligations related to the scheme. And therefore, the subsidy must be accounted for in the employer's financial statement. You'll also need to think about the timing of recognizing the grant. So if, when making the application, an entity can support that there is a reasonable assurance that the grant is going to be received, it should be able to recognize the subsidy receivable as an asset at that point. And in terms of income recognition, the subsidy is intended to compensate for wages and salaries to help retain employees for a period of time. And therefore, the grant income from the subsidy should be recognized in profit or loss to match those related salary costs as those are incurred. Again, disclosures of judgments and the accounting that has been applied going to be important here too. Thank you, Marianne. Um, I also wanted to add that if any of our listeners would like to explore this issue further, I believe our tax colleagues have published a practical guide to wage subsidy support for New Zealand businesses, which is also available on our PwC website. Now, Marianne, one more last question for you. Um, apart from government support, entities might have business continuity insurance and be able to recover some or, some, or maybe, you know, all of the costs of closing down or their loss of income. So what would be some of the considerations uh, to uh, think about here? Yes, there, there are a couple of things to mention. Firstly, before you get into the accounting, it's really important to make sure that you read the policy and figure out whether the losses arising from COVID-19 are covered. And if they are, the benefit is recognized when the recovery of insurance proceeds is virtually certain. So this typically means that the insurer has accepted that there is a valid claim and management is satisfied that the insurer can meet its obligations. That's really good refresher, Marianne. Thank you. Now, I think we've covered some of the big ticket items here. 
Uh, I think it would be also good to share a few thoughts on areas which might come into play during these challenging times. First up, restructuring. Naturally, any time we have a significant disruption to operations, companies are going to start thinking about potential restructuring of certain aspects of their business. So, for example, geographic concentration of suppliers, personnel, inventory, and so on. So, Stephen, what would be some of our main messages here then? Well, I think um, that the key thing to bear in mind here is that management's actions in relation to the virus should be accounted for as a provision only to the extent that there is a present obligation for which the outflow of economic benefits is probable and can be reliably estimated. So, for example, a provision for restructuring should be recognised only when there is a detailed formal plan for the restructuring and management have actually raised a valid expectation in those affected by the plan that it'll be implemented. Just having a restructuring plan is generally not enough to warrant the recording of a liability because it doesn't create a present obligation. A lot of things are now in motion and one of those that we've seen is around updating projections and financial forecasts. These changes may also affect entities' bonus schemes or their share-based payment plans. So for example, um, the reference points for discount rates, such as the yields on high-quality bonds, or the probability of an employee meeting the vesting conditions for bonuses or share-based payments might have changed significantly in the current environment. To the extent that such changes are beneficial to employees, um, they would need to be accounted for as a modification and an additional expense recognised. But I'd also note that um, companies should be aware that cancelling a share-based payment award even if the vesting conditions are unlikely to be satisfied, actually results in the immediate recognition of the remaining expense. Oh, absolutely, Stephen. And I guess share-based payments is a very complex area of accounting, so we would definitely suggest to think about it proactively. All right, team. Uh, do you think any, there are any other areas that come into mind right now? One last area I'd like to mention, Sasha, is an interesting quirk in accounting for inventory and the absorption of overhead costs. Under normal circumstances, a production company absorbs all overheads into the cost of inventory. This, however, contemplates that all production facilities have operated within normal capacity. However, if you have a period of abnormally low production levels, um, which some entities will experience, um, which are outside that normal utilisation range, then you should record some of those costs directly in cost of goods sold instead of capitalising these into inventory. Now, the tough part is there's no clear guidance or explicit guidance as to what's normal and what's abnormal. The entities will need to consider this and make a judgment based on the company's historical operating performance. That's a very interesting point, Tinia. I think it's particularly relevant to New Zealand producers and exporters. All right then, so why don't we just wrap things up today by talking a bit more about disclosure. Uh, the uncertainty creates a lot of challenges and management's key to successful reporting in this environment is robust and comprehensive disclosures. A lot of circumstances will be obviously entity specific, which means we won't be able to have a one size fits all performer. Um, but uh, 
um, you should be considering the disclosures as early as possible and stay in touch with your stakeholders. Anything else to add, Tim? Yeah, one other point I'd add, Sasha, is that um, I think for reporters it'll be particularly important to also disclose any changes in their financial risks, such as credit risk, liquidity risk, currency risk and price risk, or in their objectives, policies and processes for managing those risks. In particular, additional disclosures about liquidity risk might be needed where the virus has affected an entity's normal levels of cash inflows from operations, for example, or its ability to access cash in other ways, such as from factoring receivables or supplier finance. Unlike going concern, these are all standing disclosures which will need to be reassessed for completeness on an ongoing basis. That's a good point, Stephen. And um, as I mentioned earlier, disclosures are going to be very important. Uh, and entities will need to consider whether there's a need to disclose information relevant to understanding um, of the financial statements that is not otherwise disclosed as required by the accounting standards. Um, in certain cases, it might, however, be more appropriate to provide additional disclosure outside the financial statements, um, particularly if there's an in-depth review around operations. Um, entities will, however, need to ensure that disclosures made outside the financial statements do not contradict the financial statements or create an expectation that additional disclosure is required within the financial statements. These are all excellent messages, guys. Thank you very much. Um, Stephen, do you perhaps have any final comments for us? Well, Sasha, I'm, I'm sure this feels like a lot of uh, information to take in and process. Um, it is April already, and the reporting season for March year ends is now open. So some entities in New Zealand with earlier balance dates would have already filed their financial statements during the course of January or February. And fortunately at that point in time, the impact of the virus here in New Zealand wasn't as pronounced. So um, probably wasn't uh, considered an adjusting event. Whilst um, for March reporters, it's clearly going to be much more relevant. The uh, good news is that the FMA is providing regulatory relief to market participants to give them an additional two months to provide their audited financial statements. The NZX has also announced uh, various measures to relieve some of the pressure on listed entities, giving them an additional 30 days to prepare and release their results announcements and matching the FMA with a, an additional two months to provide their annual report. And finally, the company's office has also announced that if circumstances related to COVID-19 are affecting a business's ability to respond to filing deadlines, they're not going to take any action to remove entities from the registers or take any enforcement action for non-compliance with filing during these times. That is helpful. Um, and I think it is also important to point out to our listeners that we are recording this now in early April. And so to the extent that things continue to develop, we may see additional guidance forthcoming. And so please watch out for this. Absolutely. Stay tuned, everyone. And thank you so much for joining us today on this important topic. I'm very pleased to actually report that we managed to record without additional sound effects from our family members, pets or early lawnmowers. So I guess that's a success. Uh, uh, we also understand that there is a lot going on and really hope this podcast will be a helpful resource together with other publications we have on COVID-19. We will uh, naturally sharing more food for thought in our upcoming communications. 
So watch out for these when they come. And finally, please look after yourselves, your loved ones in your lockdown bubble, and stay safe. Stay strong and be kind. Kekaha, everyone. This podcast is brought to you by PwC. Please go to www.pwc.co.nz for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.